Chapter Two of Pictures from Italy by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Lyon, the Rhone, and the Goblin of Avignon. Chalon is a fair resting place in right of its good inn on the bank of the river and the little steamboats, gay with green and red paint, that come and go upon it, which make up a pleasant and refreshing scene after the dusty roads. But unless you would like to dwell on an enormous plain with jagged rows of irregular poplars on it that look in the distance like so many combs with broken teeth, and unless you would like to pass your life without the possibility of going uphill or going up anything but stairs, you would hardly approve of Chalon as a place of residence. You would probably like it better, however, than Lyon, which you may reach, if you will, in one of the before-mentioned steamboats in eight hours. What a city Lyon is! Talk about people feeling at certain unlucky times as if they had tumbled from the clouds. Here is a whole town that is tumbled anyhow out of the sky. Having been first caught up like other stones that tumble down from that region, out of fens and barren places, dismal to behold. The two great streets through which the two great rivers dash, and all the little streets whose name is Legion, were scorching, blistering and sweltering. The houses, high and vast, dirty to excess, rotten as old cheeses and as thickly peopled. All up the hills that hem the city in, these houses swarm, and the mites inside were lolling out of the windows, and drying their ragged clothes on poles, and crawling in and out of the doors, and coming out to pant and gasp upon the pavement, and creeping in and out among huge piles and bales of fusty, musty, stifling goods and living, or rather not dying, till their time should come, in an exhausted receiver. Every manufacturing town, melted into one, would hardly convey an impression of Lyon, as it presented itself to me. For all the undrained, unscavengered qualities of a foreign town seem grafted there upon the native miseries of a manufacturing one, and it bears such fruit as I would go some miles out of my way to avoid encountering again. In the cool of the evening, or rather in the faded heat of the day, we went to see the cathedral, where divers old women and a few dogs were engaged in contemplation. There was no difference in point of cleanliness between its stone pavement and that of the streets, and there was a wax saint in a little box like a berth aboard ship with a glass front to it, whom Madame Tussaud would have nothing to say to on any terms, and which even Westminster Abbey might be ashamed of. If you would know all about the architecture of this church, or any other, its dates, dimensions, endowments, and history, is it not written in Mr. Murray's guide-book, and may you not read it there with thanks to him as I did? For this reason I should abstain from mentioning the curious clock in Lyon Cathedral, if it were not for a small mistake I made in connection with that piece of mechanism. The keeper of the church was very anxious it should be shown, partly for the honour of the establishment and the town, and partly perhaps because of his deriving a percentage from the additional consideration. However that may be, it was set in motion, and thereupon a host of little doors flew open, and innumerable little figures staggered out of them, and jerked themselves back again, with that special unsteadiness of purpose and hitching in the gate which usually attaches to figures that are moved by clockwork. 
Meanwhile, the sacristan stood explaining these wonders and pointing them out severally with a wand. There was a centre puppet of the Virgin Mary, and close to her a small pigeonhole, out of which another and very ill-looking puppet made one of the most sudden plunges I ever saw accomplished, instantly flopping back again at sight of her and banging his little door violently after him. Taking this to be emblematic of the victory over sin and death, and not at all unwilling to show that I perfectly understood the subject in anticipation of the showman, I rashly said, "'Aha! The evil spirit, to be sure. He is very soon disposed of.' "'Pardon, monsieur,' said the sacristan, with a polite motion of his hand towards the little door, as if introducing somebody. "'The angel Gabriel.' Soon after daybreak next morning, we were steaming down the Arrowy Rhone, at the rate of twenty miles an hour, in a very dirty vessel full of merchandise, and with only three or four other passengers for our companions, among whom the most remarkable was a silly, old, meek-faced, garlic-eating, immeasurably polite chevalier, with a dirty scrap of red ribbon hanging at his buttonhole, as if he had tied it there to remind himself of something as Tom Noddy, in the farce, ties knots in his pocket-handkerchief. For the last two days we had seen great sullen hills, the first indications of the Alp towering in the distance. Now we were rushing on beside them, sometimes close beside them, sometimes with an intervening slope covered with vineyards. Villages and small towns hanging in mid-air, with great woods of olives seen through the light-open towers of their churches, and clouds moving slowly on upon the steep acclivity behind them. Ruined castles perched on every eminence, and scattered houses in the clefts and gullies of the hills made it very beautiful. The great height of these two making the buildings look so tiny that they had all the charm of elegant models, their excessive whiteness as contrasted with the brown rocks, or the sombre deep dull heavy green of the olive tree and little slow walk of the Lilliputian men and women on the bank made a charming picture. There were ferries out of number two, bridges, the famous Pont d'Esprit, with I don't know how many arches, towns where memorable wines are made, Valence where Napoleon studied, and the noble river bringing at every winding turn new beauties into view. There lay before us that same afternoon the broken bridge of Avignon, and all the city baking in the sun, yet with an underdone pie-crust, battlemented wall that never will be brown, though it bake for centuries. The grapes were hanging in clusters in the streets, and the brilliant oleander was in full bloom everywhere. The streets are old and very narrow, but tolerably clean and shaded by awnings stretched from house to house. Bright stuffs and handkerchiefs, curiosities, ancient frames of carved wood, old chairs, ghostly tables, saints, virgins, angels, and staring daubs of portraits being exposed for sale beneath. It was very quaint and lively. All this was much set off to by the glimpses one caught through a rusty gate standing ajar of quiet, sleepy courtyards, having stately old houses within, as silent as tombs. It was all very like one of the descriptions in the Arabian Nights. The three one-eyed calendars might have knocked at any one of those doors till the street rang again, and the porter who persisted in asking questions, 
the man who had the delicious purchases put into his basket in the morning, might have opened it quite naturally. After breakfast next morning, we sallied forth to see the lions. Such a delicious breeze was blowing in from the north, as made the walk delightful, though the pavement stones and stones of the walls and houses were far too hot to have a hand laid on them comfortably. We went first of all up a rocky height to the cathedral, where mass was performing to an auditory very like that of Lyon, namely several old women, a baby, and a very self-possessed dog, who had marked out for himself a little course or platform for exercise, beginning at the altar rails and ending at the door, up and down which constitutional walk he trotted during the service, as methodically and calmly as any old gentleman out of doors. It is a bare old church, and the paintings in the roof are sadly defaced by time and damp weather, but the sun was shining in splendidly through the red curtains of the windows, and glittering on the altar furniture, and it looked as bright and cheerful as need be. Going apart in this church to see some painting which was being executed in fresco by a French artist and his pupil, I was led to observe more closely than I might otherwise have done a great number of votive offerings with which the walls of the different chapels were profusely hung. I will not say decorated, for they were very roughly and comically got up, most likely by poor sign-painters, who eke out their living in that way. They were all little pictures, each representing some sickness or calamity from which the person placing it there had escaped through the interposition of his or her patron saint or of the Madonna, and I may refer to them as good specimens of the class generally. They are abundant in Italy. In a grotesque squareness of outline and impossibility of perspective, they are not unlike the woodcuts in old books, but they were oil paintings, and the artist, like the painter of the Primrose family, had not been sparing of his colours. In one, a lady was having a toe amputated, an operation which a saintly personage had sailed into the room upon a couch to superintend. In another, a lady was lying in bed, tucked up very tight and prim, and staring with much composure at a tripod, with a slop basin on it, the usual form of washing-stand, and the only piece of furniture beside the bedstead in her chamber. One would never have supposed her to be labouring under any complaint beyond the inconvenience of being miraculously wide awake, if the painter had not hit upon the idea of putting all her family on their knees in one corner, with their legs sticking out behind them on the floor, like boot-trees, above whom the Virgin, on a kind of blue divan, promised to restore the patient. In another case, a lady was in the very act of being run over, immediately outside the city walls, by a sort of pianoforte van, but the Madonna was there again. Whether the supernatural appearance had startled the horse, a bay griffin, or whether it was invisible to him, I don't know, but he was galloping away ding-dong without the smallest reverence or compunction. On every picture ex voto was painted in yellow capitals in the sky. Though votive offerings were not unknown in pagan temples, and are evidently among the many compromises made between the false religion and the true, when the true was in its infancy, I could wish that all the other compromises were as harmless. Gratitude and devotion are Christian qualities, and a grateful, humble Christian spirit may dictate the observance. 
Hard by the cathedral stands the ancient palace of the popes, of which one portion is now a common jail, and another a noisy barrack, while gloomy suites of state apartments, shut up and deserted, mock their own state and glory like the embalmed bodies of kings. But we neither went there to see state rooms, nor soldiers' quarters, nor a common jail, though we dropped some money into a prisoner's box outside, while the prisoners themselves looked through the iron bars high up and watched us eagerly. We went to see the ruins of the dreadful rooms in which the Inquisition used to sit. A little old swarthy woman with a pair of flashing black eyes, proof that the world hadn't conjured down the devil within her, though it had been between sixty and seventy years to do it in, came out of the barrack cabaret, of which she was the keeper, with some large keys in her hands, and marshalled us the way that we should go. How she told us on the way that she was a government officer, concierge du palais apostolique, and had been for I don't know how many years, and how she had shown those dungeons to princes, and how she was the best of dungeon demonstrators, and how she had resided in the palace from an infant, had been born there, if I recollect right, I needn't relate. But such a fierce, little, rapid, sparkling, energetic she-devil, I never beheld. She was alight and flaming all the time. Her action was violent in the extreme. She never spoke without stopping expressly for the purpose. She stamped her feet, clutched us by the arms, flung herself into attitudes, hammered against walls with her keys for more emphasis, now whispered as if the Inquisition were there still, now shrieked as if she were on the rack herself, and had a mysterious hag-like way with her forefinger, when approaching the remains of some new horror, looking back and walking stealthily and making horrible grimaces, that might alone have qualified her to walk up and down a sick man's counterpane, to the exclusion of all other figures, through a whole fever. Passing through the courtyard among groups of idle soldiers, we turned off by a gate, which this she-goblin unlocked for our admission, and locked again behind us and entered a narrow court, rendered narrower by fallen stones and heaps of rubbish, part of it choking up the mouth of a ruined subterranean passage that once communicated, or is said to have done so, with another castle on the opposite bank of the river. Close to this courtyard is a dungeon, we stood within it in another minute, in the dismal Tower des Oubliettes, where Rienzi was imprisoned, fastened by an iron chain to the very wall that stands there now but shut out from the sky which now looks down into it a few steps brought us to the cachot in which the prisoners of the inquisition were confined for forty-eight hours after their capture without food or drink that their constancy might be shaken even before they were confronted with their gloomy judges the day had not got in there yet they are still small cells, shut in by four unyielding close hard walls, still profoundly dark, still massively doored and fastened, as of old. Goblin, looking back as I have described, went softly on into a vaulted chamber, now used as a storeroom, once the chapel of the Holy Office. The place where the tribunal sat was plain. The platform might have been removed but yesterday. Conceive the parable of the Good Samaritan having been painted on the wall of one of these Inquisition chambers. But it was, and it may be traced there yet. 
high up in the jealous wall are niches where the faltering replies of the accused were heard and noted down many of them had been brought out of the very cell we had just looked into so awfully along the same stone passage we had trodden in their very footsteps i am gazing round me with the horror that the place inspires when goblin clutches me by the wrist and lays not a skinny finger but the handle of a key upon her lip she invites me with a jerk to follow her i do so she leads me out into a room adjoining a rugged room with a funnel-shaped contracting roof open at the top to the bright day i ask her what it is she folds her arms leers hideously and stares i ask again she glances round to see that all the little company are there sits down upon a mound of stones throws up her arms and yells out like a fiend la salle de la question the chamber of torture and the roof was made of that shape to stifle the victim's cries oh goblin goblin let us think of this a while in silence peace goblin sit with your short arms crossed on your short legs upon that heap of stones for only five minutes and then flame out again minutes seconds are not marked upon the palace clock when with her eyes flashing fire goblin is up in the middle of the chamber describing with her sunburnt arms a wheel of heavy blows thus it ran round cries goblin mash 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 an endless routine of heavy hammers mash 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 upon the sufferer's limbs see the stone trough says goblin for the water torture gurgle swill bloat burst for the redeemer's honour suck the bloody rag deep down into your unbelieving body heretic at every breath you draw and when the executioner plucks it out reeking with the smaller mysteries of god's own image know us for his chosen servants true believers in the sermon on the mount elect disciples of him who never did a miracle but to heal who never struck a man with palsy blindness deafness dumbness madness any one affliction of mankind and never stretched his blessed hand out but to give relief and ease see cries goblin there the furnace was there they made the irons red hot those holes supporting the sharp stake on which the tortured persons hung poised dangling with their whole weight from the roof but and goblin whispers this monsieur has heard of this tower yes let monsieur look down then a cold air laden with an earthly smell falls upon the face of monsieur for she has opened while speaking a trap-door in the wall monsieur looks in downward to the bottom upward to the top of a steep dark lofty tower very dismal very dark very cold the execution of the inquisition says goblin edging in her head to look down also flung those who are past all further torturing down here but look does monsieur see the black stains on the wall a glance over his shoulder at goblin's keen eye shows monsieur and would without the aid of the directing key where they are what are they blood in october seventeen ninety one when the revolution was at its height here sixty persons men and women and priests says goblin priests were murdered and hurled the dying and the dead into this dreadful pit where a quantity of quick lime was tumbled down upon their bodies 
those ghastly tokens of the massacre were soon no more but while one stone of the strong building in which the deed was done remains upon another there they will lie in the memories of men as plain to see as the splashing of their blood upon the wall is now was it a portion of the great scheme of retribution that the cruel deed should be committed in this place that a part of the atrocities and monstrous institutions which had been for scores of years at work to change men's nature should in its last service tempt them with the ready means of gratifying their furious and beastly rage should enable them to show themselves in the height of their frenzy no worse than a great solemn legal establishment in the height of its power no worse much better they use the tower of the forgotten in the name of liberty their liberty an earth-born creature nursed in the black mud of the bastille moats and dungeons and necessarily betraying many evidences of its unwholesome bringing up but the inquisition used it in the name of heaven goblin's finger is lifted and she steals out again into the chapel of the holy office she stops at a certain part of the flooring her great effect is at hand she waits for the rest she darts at the brave courier who is explaining something hits him a sounding rap on the hat with the largest key and bids him be silent she assembles us all round a little trap-door in the floor as round a grave voila she darts down at the ring and flings the door open with a crash in her goblin energy though it is no lightweight voila les oubliettes voila les oubliettes subterranean frightful black terrible deadly les oubliettes de l'inquisition my blood ran cold as i looked from goblin down into the vaults where these forgotten creatures with recollections of the world outside of wives friends children brothers starved to death and made the stones ring with their unavailing groans but the thrill i felt on seeing the accursed wall below decayed and broken through and the sun shining through its gaping wounds was like a sense of victory and triumph i felt exalted with a proud delight of living in these degenerate times to see it as if i were the hero of some high achievement the light in the doleful vaults was typical of the light that has streamed in on all persecution in god's name but which is not yet at its noon it cannot look more lovely to a blind man newly restored to sight than to a traveller who sees it calmly and majestically treading down the darkness of that infernal well end of chapter two